The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Don't miss Pat and Stu. The Packers season is amplified for me because hopefully there's going to be several uh, former BYU Cougars on the team. It's going to be a great year. Uh, why Why do you not live in Provo? I don't understand why you just don't move there, at least during the football season. If I could make enough money, I would. Okay. I would. Understandable. You know? Too cold. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. If you're new, I hope you've come looking for that voice of modernity, that voice of freedom, liberty, an American Muslim who's not shy to take on the Islamists and call them out by name, whether they're violent or nonviolent, and especially the nonviolent ones who pretend to be moderate by condemning terrorism, but actually are part of the problem, part of the precursor ideologies that feed into the radicalization of Muslims domestically and globally. And we're sitting on a powder keg, if you will. Uh, of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims, many have appropriately studied the fact that some 20 to 30 percent believe in political Islam or Islamic State identity in the Arab awakening and the elections in Egypt, Tunisia, and elsewhere have proven that. But we can win this battle, and I think this radio program, this podcast, is um, one of the front-line battles in that war of ideas, if you will. This week, there's a lot to talk about and on the domestic front, but uh, I want to highlight the fact that uh, while there's uh, a, a axis of political division happening in Washington that continues to grow and the chasm continues to widen as we see our, our country writhing in pain after seeing rallies and the death of innocents, in Charlottesville and elsewhere, I will not, I will not allow the subject, the discussion of Islam and Muslims, to be exploited into a discussion that is really political about American history, but not about counter radicalization and counter ideology. But there's always points of touch points, if you will, where we can begin to discuss this. And one of the things is to talk about those opposite organization, those Islamist groups like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, that true to form, being the ambulance-chasing victim-mongers that they are, released this week, in response to Charlottesville, a template, a template by which they, they ask people around the country to use the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Now, now what, by the way, even their name I find offensive, American-Islamic Relations as if somehow America and Islam are going to have relations. Is this appropriate or inappropriate relations? And what do they mean by relations? Islam is an idea. America is a country, a nation state. How can they have relations? Are they talking about American Muslim relations? We are Americans. 
If we're Americans first, how can we have relations with America unless they pretend that we are something else other than America? Now, we called our organization the American Islamic Forum for Democracy because it's an ideological organization that is a form of discussion of debate for democracy. Obviously, America is not a democracy. It's a republic. But the discussion around the planet post-Arab awakening, and we were formed in 2003, so we understood as Muslims that the leading discussion would be about how Muslims could form a democracy and what would be the underpinnings of that. And we believe that the best example on the planet is the American form that not only, that not only has a separation of powers but has a Bill of Rights with an Establishment Clause. And that Establishment Clause is the nuclear uranium pill for preventing the Islamic State for stopping Islamism as an ideology, and that's what our work is formed at. But the Council on American-Islamic Relations really looks at American Islam as two separate identities. Now, they'll claim quite the contrary. They'll claim that their work is about the synergy of American and Islam. They'll claim that there is no lack of synergy, that anyone who claims otherwise is an Islamophobe or a bigot, even though they refused, continue to refuse on a daily basis to look at those incompatibilities between Islamism or political Islam and the Islamic State identity and Western secular democracy. Well, this week in response to the horrors coming out of Charlottesville and the rallies and the death of the innocent woman and the calls to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee and the rallies by neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and then the response on the left and others, and some of these attention to the media, typical for ambulance chasing victim concept organizations, they have exploited the current situation to find themselves relevant, to keep their names in the news. And sure enough, they released the Council on America-Islamic Relations calls on state and local governments all over the United States to tear down all monuments and memorials commemorating Confederate leaders and the short-lived Confederate States of America. They joined several groups in the wake of a, quote, Unite the Right white supremacist rally that turned violent over the weekend. Nihad Awad urged state and local governments to erase every symbol and every vestige of Confederate history immediately. He said a fitting response to the deadly terror attacks on anti-racist protesters in Charlottesville would be for officials in states and cities nationwide to immediately announce that every street, every school, every flag, every public memorial honoring those who took up arms in defense of white supremacy and slavery be removed or have its name changed to instead honor those who fought for civil rights, Awad said in a statement to the Daily Caller. So, Quick, boy, and then they release this template of 20 things that should be done in order to call for the removal of all the different Confederate symbols and history and statues and others in cities across the country. And sure enough, the Council on American-Islamic Relations is weighing into this need to erase any memory because they feel that those memories are fuel for white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Now, I've listened to actually great arguments, discussions, and debates about this on such conservative networks as NPR. 
which is a liberal network, leftist network, but they had a great conversation with many non-conservatives saying that we should leave those statues in memoriam because those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, as many scholars have said. So you can make a valid argument that those statues should stay. Now, as Rich Lowry said in the National Review, maybe those statues should stay in museums and cemeteries and take them down if they're in positions in which they're looked upon in a glorified kind of way rather than simply historical. That's fine. But for care to weigh in and say that they want to remove it because it's causing racism and those symbols are what led to this racist rally. Yes, the rally was racist and bigoted. And yes, those white supremacists and neo-Nazis need to be marginalized and should be done so crisply and clearly without any apologetic, without any nuance, and without any false moral equivalencies. But that's not what CARE is targeting. CARE wants to set their standard, which is standard for the Salafists, the blasphemy law invokers who believe that Ideas have rights, that symbols have rights. And those rights thus demand the snuffing out of other ideas and other symbols. That's why you see in Saudi Arabia, if you look at just Google, when you get a chance, Google the destruction of Islamic relics. And what do you see? You'll see hit after hit about Saudi Arabia. ISIS, the Muslim Brotherhood, Jamaat Islami in Pakistan, the Iranian Khomeinists, the Islamists, the deep fundamental Islamists, it is part of their core belief that any representation in history books, sculptures, art, history, whatever it may be, that is present in society that defies their own interpretation of what is or is not their country or their Islam especially, which they unite into one, should be removed. And thus the Saudis have made it a mainstay to constantly be demolishing, removing Shia symbols of Shiite Islam since they are Sunni radicals. Removing Sufi Sufi structures memorials and other things that offends and deeply disturbs those Sufis who, have, who see it removed and destroyed. ISIS, as they rampage Syria, removed and destroyed intentionally relics of Christianity, churches, synagogues, historical monuments in Palmyra or Tadmur and elsewhere in Syria. This is well known. So, care pulls from the normal Salafi playbook, right? Salafists, those who want to return time to the way it was in Islam, and says, hey, a little wink and a nod to the revisionists, the historical revisionists in America. We're with you. We love historical revisionism when it comes to Muslim-majority countries, and we will become historical revisionists when it comes to America and clean it of any history of racism and slavery and other things. And any icons, we will have them removed. And along with it, we may see the loss of the historical country. Maybe not just as Rich Lowry said, you know, listen, nobody's going to miss. Even Robert E. Lee himself 
said those statues should not exist because he recognized he lost the Civil War, he was no fan of slavery, etc., etc. But along with it then might be removed history, proud history of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, our founding fathers who were American nationalists, who were the brainchilds of our founding documents and our ideas that to this day keep us as the strongest democracy on the planet. And CARE is working hand in glove with the leftists, the collectivists, to find any opportunity to redefine and change and reshape what it is to be American. And any collectivist entity that can do that by through a slippery slope of beginning to break down the foundations of what it means to be an American, CARE will dive into. So make no mistake, CARE's apple is not falling far from its cellophus tree in which they destroyed monuments and relics of Islamic history that defy their conservative fundamentalist interpretation. If you look at liberal Islamic history where there were thousands of Sharia schools of thought rather than the four in the Sunni tradition today, they want all those pieces of history removed. There might have been other immoralities, corruptions that they may perceive at the time, so therefore that's the excuse they use to remove them. But that's classic out of the playbook of the Salafis. When we come back, let's talk about the left working with care and the Islamists and what they get out of that. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck, on sale now at glennbeck.com liars. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. It's great to be with you and always a lot to talk about. This week I opened uh, talking about this synergy between the Islamist groups, the Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, and the left's identity groups. And it's not about left-right, but if there's anything that makes me a conservative, and and if this applies to liberals also, please, then don't take this as a right-left thing. The identity movements based on grouping people together based on immutable characteristics, be it skin color, be it ethnic heritage, be it family, whatever it may be, genetics, things you can't change. Those are not ideologic. I would think people come together based on shared interests, shared beliefs, shared principles, shared moralities. They don't come together based on skin color and, and other things. If you truly believe in a race-blind community, in equality of all, then you would not group people to vote, to act, 
together in unison in a collective based on some immutable characteristics, be it ethnicity, race, or national origin. But yet care exploits exploits the predilection of a diverse country like the United States to protect its minorities, its heritage of of correcting its past ills, if you will, in the West, in which various movements of supremacism, be it German nationalism of Nazism, Italian fascism of Mussolini and others, have been corrected. Even those arose post-democratic revolutions, post-enlightenment, and the principles of equality that were part of the egalitarian liberty movements of classical liberalism. But at the end of the day, the fall back, whether it's to the far left or the far right, far right, come together in fascisms of supremacism, of the far left it's the supremacism of the negation of the individual in at, at the expense of the collective, of the group mentality, be it the communism of shared wealth in which there's no property rights or the, or the socialism in which the, the state owns all the property and all of your wealth, or the far right in which the racial identity of a people becomes its identity of its national identity and thus negates and thus national socialism of the right of the far right is equal to the leftist socialism, collective socialism of the far left. And the Islamists are all too willing, the Islamists are all too willing to piggyback the predilection of groups, of tribes, of groupthink to work together in order to bring to the table the Islamist tribe. And the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt fought against national socialism of Jamal Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, Hosni Mubarak, and now Jim, now El-Sisi. Those are military dictators. The Wahhabis, the collectivist Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia fought against the fascism of the monarchies. So all of these are two extremes, one collective pluralist, not plural, populistic type of uh, fascisms that were seen on the left and the Islamist piggyback. But ultimately, when the Islam is getting control, as we saw with Morsi in Egypt, when the Muslim Brotherhood got in control, it brought to bear its theocratic mindset of Sharia law and its Sharia collectivism and the Sharia state or Islamic law state that negated negated this sense of equality of all of the left, of the populist movements, and actually brought to bear a theocracy. And you see often the so-called grassroots Islamists like Tariq Ramadan in Europe from Sweden and worked with Britain and others in Europe who claims to be such an egalitarian neo-Salafi, a, a modern incarnation of Salafism, and ultimately the grandson of the founding father of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna. Tariq Ramadan finds himself often working very closely with the theocrats of Iran, having a show on press TV, Iranian national television, and working closely with Islamists around the world, including the Islamic Circle of North America, 
the byproduct of Jamaat Islamiyah of Indo-Pakistan region, a party, an Islamic party founded by Maududi, who is a contemporary of Tar Ramadan's grandfather, Hassan al-Banna. We see classically over and over in history the Islamists, collectivists, theocrats, whether it's grassroots movements or corporate movements, love to work with the left. Now in Europe, we've seen some break from the far left with the Islamists where Tariq Ramadan found himself the subject of attacks from the National Socialist Workers' Party in Europe, in which they said these are the 40 reasons why you should not work with Tar Ramadan, the wolf in sheep's clothing, who is an Islamist, and they explained how he ultimately believed in theocracy, something that the Islam of the National Socialist Worker Party reject. So when they finally come to their senses, the far-left socialists, which I believe are fascists, will reject the other fascists of the theocrats if they start to really pay attention to what they actually believe. But we are in a much earlier stage in the United States. Some of that's been insulated as a result of what it means to be an American, as a result of the fact that there's been no need for religious parties. There's been a celebration, a protection of religious expression publicly in America, far more so than in Europe. So the Islamists have not felt as embattled to take control. Muslims, non-Islamist Muslims have not felt as embattled to allow the Islamists to control them as strongly. Now, they still do in America, but certainly in Europe, France, Germany, Sweden, it's been a much easier mechanism for them to control the Muslim community and let the Islamists become the spokespeople for the Muslim community far more easily than the United States because there's very little celebration of the public role of religion in the hyper-secularism of Europe. Now, having said that, fast forward to what was going on in Charlottesville this week and how CARE piggybacked onto their recommendations. And they said they requested the removal of all Confederate memorials, flags, street names, symbols, everything. And they said, whereas the preservation of these memorials validates the subjugation experienced by African Americans due to their size, prominent placement, and public display. So the memorial validates that. Whereas the investments and arrangement made to recognize Confederate figures communicates core beliefs that promote the endurance of white supremacy and racism. So simply the symbol pushes forth, according to care, the core beliefs. When we talked a few weeks ago about an imam in Southern California, that sermon went on for an hour about the, the evil of the Jews and the need to defeat the Jews and the, the, the anti-Semitism dripping from his microphone for an hour. He then, after public repudiation, petitions and other things, was forced to then have this lukewarm apology that he brought forth to the community a few weeks later. That direct verbiage in which he expressed his clear anti-Semitism was not repudiated by care in any way. No. But they're looking at symbols that are then used as a touchpoint for true fascists like the white supremacists, the KKK, David Duke, and others, that these true fascists use as a touchpoint 
which are a clear part of American history. And CARE wants to remove the symbols and show Americans how to do it. Oh, because they've been trained well by the Saudis on how to remove relics in history and repaint, revise history. They're very good at revising history. Yeah, CARE and the Muslim Brotherhood are very good at revising history, declaring what is and what is not Islamic, what is and what is not permitted, what is and what is not free speech to them. Because to them, ideas have rights. Ideas can be good and bad. But they can be prevented according to CARE. And then they go on with the touch points resolved that all these memorials be removed. So I think, look at, look at the localities where you are. All politics, as we say, are local. See the synergy between Islamic leaders, the Islamists, and many in the so-called activist interfaith movements and the identity movements. Islam is not a race. CARE seeks to racialize Islam by making Islam, which is an idea that we believe was a faith, a religion born from the scripture of the Qur'an, that idea can be rejected, accepted, ridiculed, honored, whatever it may be as an idea, no different than any idea in humanity can be lifted or not. When they racialize it, they make it into something they control and cannot be criticized because it then becomes bigotry to criticize it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you invoke blasphemy laws. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how and why CARE and other Islamist Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in the West will use the collectivization of a minority like Muslims to then tell other minorities like African Americans, like feminist movements and others that we got your back. We got your back. We will stand with you. The Linda Sarsours of the world will lead a women's march. And as they lead the women's march, fool people into thinking that they're all about minority rights when in fact all they're doing is waiting in wait, lying in wait, so they can use the attention of that group that they get into political power, be it, be it the collective African-American community, the collective feminist community, or others, to then say, look, now we will use our platform as three, four million Muslims in America to then demand that a quarter of the world's population be paid attention to as we invoke anti-Israel policies, as we invoke pro-Saudi petro-oil policies, as we invoke pro-Homanus policies. They will use their platform here, their exploitation of the body politic through identity politic, this fake, this dissimulation or taqiyyah in which they say they care about America's confederate or non-confederate history. When in fact, before a few weeks ago, they probably had to read up on Robert E. Lee's history to even know anything about it because they only care about foreign policy of America in the Middle East. And that's the only reason many of them, especially the leadership of these organizations, are engaged in the American conversation. Because if they cared about other issues, they'd be engaged on Obamacare or, or rejection of Obamacare. They'd be engaged about encouraging their sons and daughters to join or not join the military, engaged in whether they should be serving abroad, 
serving their countries. Yes, they serve, but it is not part of their mission. Their mission is about American-Islamic relations, not about being American, period. And that is how Islamists hijack identity movements, use identity movements to invoke blasphemy laws. This is Zudi Jass. We'll be right back. I'm Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. Let's step away from the politics, the domestic organization issues, and let's let's talk now about radicalization, about where we are in the West as as we are obsessed. We were obsessed with Russia, 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 Russia. Now we're obsessed with Trump press conferences and other things. Meanwhile, the Islamists continue continue to look for that opportunity, continue to look for how to disrupt the West. And we are getting weaker and weaker as we get more and more distracted. The threat level continues to increase. ISIS this week in Inspire magazine talked about, remember a few months ago there, Inspire, I'm sorry, almost a year ago there, Inspire magazine talked about vehicular jihad, how to use a car to attack groups that would not be prepared to drive it through and kill any and all quote-unquote infidels, unquote, according to ISIS's professionally made magazine that's used to operationalize the Islamists. That doesn't radicalize them. The Inspire magazine simply operationalized previously radicalized Muslims. And that's an important point because people think, oh, a normal Muslim gets online and starts surfing, and next thing you know, it's like porn. They're drawn into it, and and uh, they become radicalized. No. The Islamist, the political Islamist Muslim, brings the ideas of separationism, alienation, hate for Western society, for secularism, for what they view as a hedonistic, anti-Islamic, bigoted culture, and they start searching for allies. They then find Islamists and look for more militant ones that really feed their antagonism, their antipathy for the West that is fed to them before they get online by groups like CARE, the Muslim Public Affairs Council, and others that view this country, that view themselves as victims rather than as leaders, as Americans first, but rather they view them as Americans third, fourth, and rather as victimized Muslims first. So, the Inspire magazine this week targeted trains, said you can get a little decoupler that you can put on and it showed where to get that from to derail trains and cause chaos. And sure enough, the train system is more vulnerable. And sure enough, ISIS, as reports said, learned that from reading our own Homeland Security reports that were being put out by Congress and others that discussed vulnerable points in witness testimony. So again, our democracy is our greatest asset against Islamism, but also sometimes 
our greatest liability because the information gets put out that they, they, that then they exploit to learn about our vulnerabilities. But we can't plug vulnerabilities that we don't talk about. So this is the price of freedom. And you know, Israel's been dealing with this for 60 plus years where they've understood that the openness of their democracy, of their secular democracy, has sort of understood that it will be threatened by population that will commit suicide, individuals that will attack them in their restaurants, their buses, and elsewhere, but they continue to live live on without changing who they are. And we must do the same as Americans. We must continue to live on without changing who we are. The threats from Inspire magazine about trains should open our vigilance. There's 100,000 miles of train tracks that we have to protect. I'm sure we are hopefully doing so with cameras and other things that can pick up odd activity in an aggregated way. But then the touch points at terminals and other things of entry needs, a, needs vigilance of every citizen of see something, say something. And the subways have been hit before, be it 7-7 in London, be it the subway system in Spain by Al-Qaeda since 9-11, on and on. And every whack-a-mole that we get, hopefully we get it before they commit the act. But we learned in the attack in Paris, November 2015, that the same cell, even if it doesn't get caught initially after it committed the act in which 100-plus were killed, escaped for four months until March 2016 in which another act was committed in Belgium. How could they escape and go bo across borders into Belgium and then commit another act even while police were closing in on them? How could that happen? It's because of the separationist mentality, the circles of protection that might exist with families, neighborhoods, and others that are separated out from what is perceived to be the normal Belgian EU community that is aware with the frightened and heightened awareness of security threat versus those that may be watching foreign media living in their own enclaves and disconnected from their society. So part of the counter-radicalization must be to break down those walls, not just the, 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 the known walls that existed between the fascism of the Soviet Union and the West, but the walls of separationism of the consciousness of Islamists that come into the West to make money, but do not bring down the walls of consciousness to absorb and become Belgian nationals, French nationals, German nationals who believe in Western society. So these threats increase. What are we doing about it? Did you know about the threat to the trains? And along with that, France this week reported a 60% increase in radicalization in the last two years. That was according to the Minister of the Interior, Gerard Colomb. He said there's 18,550 people currently registered by authorities as potential radicals, up from 11,400 in 2015. Their database keeps track of suspects, potential suspects, personal information, relationships with terror groups. Remember, the touchpoint is terror groups. 
That's not even the Islamists. Now, I think two things are important here. The 18,000 that they're following, just like the 20, 30,000 that we know about are being followed in Britain after the Manchester attacks. They said, well, how could we have known about those few because we were following 28,000 or however many? And now we hear the French are following 18,500. As I said on every interview I could, narrow those down, not just the connection with terror groups. Which ones are Islamists? Let's say it's 30-40%. At least you cut it in half or more. The Islamists. I guarantee you, 99% of those who are going to commit acts of terror are going to be ideological Islamists who believe in Islamic state mentality, who follow and belong to political Islamic groups, be it charity groups or whatever it might be. They may be nonviolent, but if they believe and follow Islamist groups... Not just the terror groups, but Islamism as an ideology. Salafism, Wahhabism, the mosques they go to. These are all relevant. Nobody's saying to wiretap. Well, wait a minute. On these, these are known suspects. Maybe they would be able to get uh, the ability to wiretap them. So if you follow them, follow the Islamism. But nobody's talking about those ideologies. None. So this French report this week... Minister of the Interior Cologne recently warned that 271 French radicals have returned to the country after fighting for Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. He said the terror threat remains very, very high with seven foiled attacks since the start of the year. Seven foiled attacks. Whack-a-mole doesn't even begin to describe this. On August 6th, the Champs-Élysées has been targeted twice, he told the Journal de Dimanche. And our services have foiled seven attack attempts since the beginning of the year. France has been in a state of emergency for almost two years since the Paris attacks in November 2015. President Emmanuel Macron has promised to end it by the end of 2017 by passing legislation that would turn most of the powers into permanent laws. So we see the character and identity of Western nations beginning to change. They're turning anti-terror acts into permanent laws. Maybe that's necessary. But I'm telling you that that is going to need a much more draconian effort if you don't target the right ideology and engage the ideology in an antiseptic way, not only from government, but from private and public shaming. Not to take away their civil rights. I mean, you had Prime Minister May, who was a Sharia apologist for years while she was a home secretary in Britain, that recently said that she basically didn't care about certain rights and stuff as long as she wanted to keep her citizens protected. That was in the wake of Manchester that she said that. Seriously? Seriously, now we don't care? Why is it that France, France's radicalization has, improved, has increased that much? Despite all of the counter-radicalization processes. Uh, because none of them are addressing political Islam. They have 10 to 15% population of Muslims in France. Germany, something like 8 to 9%. France, Italy has the smallest number, but it also is now beginning to see some radicalization. 
Sweden, Finland, on and on. And until we begin, remember it, we, you and I talked a couple weeks ago about that liberal mosque in Germany. You're hearing stories about that anymore? The lady that formed it, that welcomed men and women to stand next to each other, prayers led by women, these are all revolutionary ideas. But she needed German police protection. And the Germans are providing it from what I hear. But that's one avenue. I don't think that's going to be solved by in the liberal mosque mindset. I do think, yes, that's one of the solutions. But I think the bigger solution is a movement of reformation, a movement of Muslim reform that begins to develop an identity outside the mosque, a national identity of a community in which ummah is redefined. No longer a state but simply as a global community of human beings, Muslim, non-Muslim, atheist, believers, whatever it may be, all of humanity is one ummah. Until we redefine that, you are going to continue to see radicalization after radicalization. And these numbers should not surprise the French. They should not surprise anyone. It should not be a footnote on the small part of your news feed that we miss because we're obsessed with the degradation of our society because of political division. I'm not saying there aren't important, some important issues being discussed week to week, but we can't ignore these reports. We can't ignore the lack of strategy. And over the next few months, I'll be talking to you. I'm going to be participating in, an, in a web summit at websummit.com brings together all the internet movements, leaders in the world in November 2017. That's what we should be focusing on, is what do we do to spread ideas? When we come back, I want to link what we do in North Korea. North Korea with the fight for freedom against radical Islam. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. I believe all bigotry is wrong. I believe all hatred is wrong because of somebody's skin color. But not John McCain, not Mitt Romney, not the establishment Republicans who are unloading on Donald Trump for saying that he condemns all racism, all bigotry, and all hatred, which is the only responsible stance a president can take and do what they can to be rid of Donald Trump. The Chris Salcedo Show, weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, I'm sure you probably, as you, as you listen to the end of the last time, you're like, North Korea and radical Islam, what is he talking about? Is he about Iran and how North Korea has been possibly in the future helping nuclearize Iran? Well, that, that, is a, that is a concern we've talked about, but no, that's not what I meant. I meant when you're talking about foreign policy, when you're talking about foreign policy, how do you deal with nations with lots of power. And how do you define that power? Could be monetary power, as petro-Islamists have. 
natural resource power, as petro-Islamists have, military power, as Russia, China have, nuclear power, as North Korea has. Maybe. Maybe developing or on the way to developing. How do you deal with that? And it seems that the only reason we care about North Korea is the bellicose nutcase that's running that country threatens us, directly, openly threatens us. So if they're not stupid enough to threaten us, we seem to not care. So Syria, Assad, hasn't really directly threatened us, so we sort of keep our hands off. That's normal human behavior, right? If a a bully at the end of the street isn't walking down to your house and on his way with signs that say, I'm going to destroy your house, you pretty much leave him alone or call the cops. And we aren't the world's cops. We do, I think, we can get into this discussion of what is the role of America for protecting and advancing human rights. What is the role of America in history to say that we've done to advance human rights and liberty? And then comes the sort of more complicated conversation with every one of these bellicose dictators that are genocidal like Assad, and I'm sure Kim Jong-un would be, and has been with his own people. Is that if that genocide starts to go outside their borders, we care more internally, be it in Rwanda, Syria, or elsewhere, we don't do much typically. We did in World War II, that's for sure, but it took over 6 million Jews to die before we did much. And I believe that was far too late. But we did. But what brought us into that war? Again, it wasn't the genocide of the Jews. It was the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was the spread into the rest of Europe of German Nazism. What is our role historically? What, what, when and when and how should our sons and daughters pay the ultimate price? Tom Malinowski, the head of the Human Rights and um, section of the State Department under Obama for years, had, I think, a really good piece in Politico about how to take down Kim Jong-un. How to take him down. You can have a policy of regime change without actually saying that's your policy. And ultimately, you know, listen, I think President Trump's response sort of to push back like you do with the bully on the playground, to show him that he can't be a bully, there's nothing wrong with that. Peace through strength, as Ronald Reagan used to say. And if that strength involves talking about fire and fury and other things, so be it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And people like Senator Rubio, Senator McCain, and others, well, actually McCain was critical, but I think Senator Rubio and others were right that there was nothing wrong with President Trump making that response to Kim Jong-un. But ultimately, his behavioral change, maybe in the last few days, I think had to do with 
the economic sanctions from Russia and China, China especially, that was a coup, a billion-dollar change in their economic pressure of an economy totally of three or four billion or something like that. So that had huge impact, I think. But it's still, even after that passed, Kim Jong-un became even more bellicose. But then China said, we will not have your back if you get into a war. And I think that changed their behavior. But I think in the long term, how long are we going to do this dance? A few months from now, this crazy dictator will wake up again and want to say something different and attack and want to be given the elevated attention of the West. So he'll say something crazy and it'll require a response and we may end up finding ourselves on the brink of war because he may actually want to commit national suicide because he's just that crazy. So what do we do about that? I think ultimately in North Korea, as Malinowski said, you begin the process of getting ideas into those into that country. If you talk to anyone that finally escaped North Korea, they'll tell you there is a hunger of people to figure out how to turn that key to weaken that government and create a revolutionary change. And the best way to do it is on the backs of some of the economic movement of materials into North Korea from China. So on the back of that, you can bring in through thumb drives, through whatever way possible, images, ideas that allow the fertilization of the infrastructure of revolution that would end up toppling that government. Because think about how the wall came down. East and West Germany ended up becoming one Germany without any war. The difference between those two sides was huge. East Germany was a failing economy, was on the brink of disaster. And the wall came down because the Soviets economically failed and the empire fell apart. Similarly, North and South Korea will achieve reunification once the North Korean government fails. And we can hasten that if we begin a stronger, more forward policy of working with grassroots movements and beginning to, to, to plant the seeds of revolution. So all I can tell you is what we learn, I learn as an Islamic reformist, is that it might be right to be strong, absolutely. You're not going to find a stronger hawk than I against those who threaten America. But at the end of the day, isn't it better to strategically work to get North Korea to a place in which they toppled their own regime before their crazy dictator throws a suicidal bomb? Because if he throws that bomb, we'll have to respond. And the tens of thousands or however many in the war games plays out of North Koreans that die as a result of us trying to kill their military will we'll at the end know that they were killed by American bombs. And if we can find a way, ultimately they'll know it's their own government that did that to them. But if we can find a way to do that, to do that without, be, to change their regime before we end up in war, then we've achieved the best solution, if possible, in this horrible situation in North Korea. So similarly, be it in Syria, be it in Saudi Arabia, be it in Pakistan, these so-called allies are open-air prisons. Iran is an open-air prison. Its people are waiting 
to change their government. So we're all worried about Iran getting a nuclear weapon. The best anti-nuclear Iranian program is the Green Revolution. And yet you have so many hand ringers in the West, on the left and the right, saying that it is not our role to be nation building and to do all these things. Well, you know, listen, you can wait until these governments become more and more bellicose and nuts and deteriorate into theocratic fascists that want to destroy us and destroy Israel. And there's a new story today, this week, that says that Iran is moving in some major missiles that could threaten Israel directly into Syria. Heavy, heavy evidence of movement of large missiles into Syria that would target Israel. So that is what we lose by allowing genocidal regimes like Assad to work closely with Iran, to give them a, a fertile Iranian Shia crescent that gives them the, the, the foothold into Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. So that hegemonization of the Shia Islamism of the Khomeinists not only ends up threatening America, that isn't too hard to understand, but the only way to defeat that short of going to war again in Iran and Iraq against the Shia Khomeinists is to strategize for helping those who share our values. People say, well, there aren't any. No, there's no Muslims who share our values. You can say the same thing about North Korea. How many North Koreans share our values? Nobody knows. But I bet you if we put resources into moving the ideas of freedom and liberty and religious freedom, human rights, it would be picked up by enough people to destabilize. Remember a couple episodes ago, we talked about what percent of people need to be engaged in an idea for it to take hold? 10%. 5% makes a dent, 6% maybe. 8% starts to rumble underneath but the tipping point is 10%. So if we could get 10% of North Koreans to buy into ideas that can spread virally, you could destabilize the country without having to get us into a nuclear conflict. Same thing in Iran, the Green Revolution that we abandoned in 2009. So to all you isolationists or non-interventionists, whatever your name is today, of the ideology that you represent, it's not about military intervention. It's about preventing military intervention by preventing the need to engage the most bellicose, psychotic dictators on the planet by helping those people on the ground, the grassroots movements, strategically as being the mission of the United States to evangelize, evangelize liberty, evangelize secular democracy. Some friends of mine, are called, they call themselves the secular jihadists. I disagree or agree with some of their program. I think it's interesting, but why can't we be jihadists for secularism? I mention them because they obviously coined it. But why can't we spread, not militarily, but non-militarily, ideologically, the ideas of freedom and liberty? Because the Assads, the Khomeinists of the world, will ultimately look out for their own kleptocracy, their own theocracies, 
and will never ever allow those who share our values to grow within their countries and thus we will never have good economic relations and other than natural resources there's a reason there's no products that come out of the middle east worth anything in the free market world because the open-air prisons don't allow creativity and ingenuity that is the strategy to defeat kim jong-un and other dictators before they get nuclearized it's always great to be with you all thank you for joining me look forward to next week on reform this on the blaze radio network god bless reform this with dr zudi jasser breaching the fault lines of today the blaze radio network